If you got your Bibles and you want to follow along, turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. Begin a new chapter today, Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Um, the title of our lesson is The New World. The New World. Um, so let's, let's kind of set the stage as we leave chapter 8 and we come into chapter 9. Uh, Noah and his family, his three sons, his wife, uh, their wives, and of course Noah's wife have left the ark. Uh, they're finally on dry ground and they are ready to begin life in uh, a new world. Now, as we've mentioned several times, this is a, a new world in the sense that, that things are, are very different uh, from the world that they, that they left pre uh, previously. Remember, physically, we've talked about this several times, the landscape is completely different. Uh, there are mountains now where there weren't mountains before. The, the oceans are deeper. The continents are different. The climate, uh, which was, before was very warm and tropical, is now very uh, seasonal. Uh, they're probably up on top of the mountain or, or near the top of a mountain, and so they are, are probably walk off into colder uh, weather. So, so physically, everything has changed, but, the, but that's one side of the, of the coin. The other side of the coin is what about society in general? Will that change? Now, let's be honest. When you think about this whole thing, it didn't turn out so good the first time, right? I mean, God started with Adam and Eve, and things kind of went downhill from there. Now God is going to start with, with Noah and his family. What's, I mean, is there any chance that things can be any, any different? Probably not, because Noah and his family are sinners, and they're just going to reproduce other sinners. So the, the thing is, the question kind of becomes, will God... As far as society goes, will God leave things as they were? You know, I know that didn't work out too good the first time, but Noah, y'all do the best you can, and I'm sure, you know, maybe you'll do better this time. Or will he institute any changes? And these are the questions and the issues that these first seven verses of chapter 9 are going to address. This passage actually contains five blessings. Now, I... If I was just looking at it, I would be more apt to call them mandates or maybe even commands. Uh, but I'm going to call them blessings because that's exactly what the Bible calls them. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, And God blessed Noah and his son. So what he's about to say are blessings. And that's what the Bible calls them. And so therefore, that is what we're going uh, to call them. Now, there are five blessings in these seven verses, I, I started, I mean, you can, you could call them different things. I started them all with a P, hopefully to make them easier to remember. They are procreation, prominence, provision, prohibition, and protection. Those are the five blessings, and we'll get to them individually in just a second. Now, the thing I want you to understand is, is these blessings are universal blessings for all mankind. These aren't limited to uh, to the Jews, they're not limited to Christians, they're not limited to uh, people who just love God. These are blessings for everybody. Okay, so this is a, this is a very universal, very, very general ble uh, blessing. So in that sense, what he's about to say is going to be foundational to civilization. It's going to be foundational to, uh, to human society uh, in, in general. Okay, so let's start and look through uh, these five blessings. The first blessing that he gives. Now remember, 
The question as you get off and you walk off the ark into this new world, as far as society goes, is will God leave things the same or will he change things? Right? Is he just going to let us go on our own? In other words, what's going to be the same? What's going to be different? The first one is procreation. Let's look at verses 1. And, and this blessing actually is bookends. It, it, it starts in verse 1 and he restates it in verse 7. And it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in verse 7 he says it again, And you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Now, one thing to notice here is this is the exact same blessing that God gave to Adam and Eve before sin kind of corrupted everything on the earth. It is the exact same blessing. Genesis 1:28, seven months ago when we started this study, we read this. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Exact same blessing. Now, listen, God didn't have to do that. See, we've, we've read this story and we've known this story for so long that sometimes we just make assumptions that, well, sure, they're going to have kids, but God didn't have to do that. God could have said to Noah, you know, Noah, I found you to be a righteous man, so I saved you and your family, but let's face it, if you have kids, this thing's going to go to pot in a hurry. So I'm just going to let you guys, you and your family, live out your life, live your 600, 700, 800, 900 years, finish out your life, and then I'll figure something else out after that, right? Maybe I'll start over. See, God didn't have to tell them, hey, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But he, but he did. So the good news here, especially for Noah and his family, is that God is not changing the original plan. In one sense, Noah and his family now kind of step into the place of Adam and Eve, and it's going to be their responsibility to populate, or in this case, repopulate the earth. But now listen, God completely understands what this means. Okay, God, God's not, a, he's not foolish. He doesn't think, you know, maybe these guys, it'll turn out better. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He understands that Noah is a sinner. Noah's wife is a sinner. Noah's sons and, and their wives are all sinners. And they're going to reproduce little sinners who are going to reproduce. And eventually, there's going to be billions of sinners running around on that planet. God understands that completely. But he still blesses them to do that. I mean, that's, that's pretty mind-blowing when you think about that, that God knows exactly where this is going. It's heading toward billions of sinners corrupting and, and polluting a, a planet. He knows that exactly, and he still blesses them to do that. Now, I want to know why. I, you know, why would you, why would you do that, God? Well, before I answer that, I need to remind you of something that we talked about way back in chapter 1. And that is that mankind is created in the image of God. Now, we all know that, right? We, we've read that so many times. We're created in the image of God, created in the image of God, created in the image of God. But what does that mean? What, what does it mean that you and I are created in, in the image of God? Because let me tell you, whatever it means is what separates us from animals. You understand that, right? Whatever that little phrase means is, is the thing that separates us from every other created thing. So it's a, it's a pretty important thing. I mean, take even the most intelligent animals. There's a huge separation between us and them because we are made 
in the image of God. Now, if you remember, we studied this back in chapter 1. The, the root of the Hebrew word there for image is selim, which means to, to carve off or to cut off. It's got the idea that you, you, know, you take something out of something and you, and you make it like that thing. In fact, it's used a lot uh, in the area of idolatry uh, in the Old Testament. In other words, what this word is telling us is that man is a likeness of God. We are shaped and we are formed like God. But here's the thing. This has nothing to do with the physical. Nothing. Absolutely zero. The Bible says in John, I think it's 424, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. So when it says we are formed after the image of God, forget the physical. Just set that completely aside. God is not physical. God is spirit. So when it talks about us being formed in the image of God, it's talking about something spiritual, not something physical, right? We talked about this. You remember scientists will look at a monkey or even a banana and say, well, you share 90% of your DNA with a banana. Who cares? It's got nothing to do with nothing. What sets us apart is nothing physical at all. You can't measure it in chromosomes or, or, or DNA or, or any kind of chemical formula. It is a spiritual thing. That's what it mean, means to be made in the image of God. So it's not the physical that makes us human. In fact, we know this, by the way, because you can take away our bodies, take away the physical, and I'll still live forever. See, that's, it's, it's, this, it's this wonderful thing that we have as human beings, and it's all spiritual. Take away my body, I just keep on going. See, I mean, because you can't kill who I am, because who I am is, is really is in my spirit. We are made in the image of God. So man, what that means for us, as we just said, is man is eternal. Not, plants aren't eternal. Animals aren't eternal. We are the only created beings that are eternal. We bear a spiritual life that people, you, you know, you can't see, right? We can see the physical, we can't see the spiritual. And what that means for us is that we have attributes of something called personhood that animals do not have. For example, we have self-consciousness. We, we know who we are, right? We know, uh, we know we have reason, we have logic, we can think abstractly. We can appreciate things like beauty. We can appreciate, we have things like emotions. We have a moral consciousness. All of these things are born out of this, this spiritual likeness uh, in the image of God. And what all this stuff does is it gives us the ability to relate to other people. And it also gives us the ability to relate to God. In fact, the core, I think, and I said this several, several weeks ago, the core of what it means to be made in the image of God can really be summed up by the word personal. We are a person. We can relate personally, not only to other people, but we can relate personally to God himself. We understand concepts like fellowship, love, uh, duty, service, worship, right? Animals don't get, they have no concept of those kind of things. But we do, and that's what it means to be made in the image of God. You see, animals can procreate physical life. God doesn't say, doesn't bless animals to go procreate. They just do it. But he blesses us to procreate. What does that mean? Does that mean just giving rise to another physical life? No, it means giving life, it means giving rise to another spiritual life. See, we can, we can procreate beings just like us. Now, 
Why is this a blessing? That's the question. Why is this a blessing? Well, I'm going to give you two reasons why it's a blessing. Number one, he does it for our benefit. Okay, let me tell you what I mean by this. He gives to us men and women who are sinners. Men and women, by the way, from the very moment we're born, our minds are bent toward evil. Yes or no? That is the way we are bent. That is the way we want to go. And he gives to us the ability to to procreate or to produce other beings who, by the way, are also bent toward evil from the moment they are born. And this all includes the blessing of family, of marriage, of children, right? This is all included in this in this procreation thing. You see, God knows Noah and his family are going to, as I said earlier, they're going to produce untold numbers of sinners that are going to spread over this planet and just, I mean, billions of sinners running around, all of them who are bent from evil from the day they are born. Yet he blesses them, each and every one of them, not just Christians, not just Jews, not just those that love God, but each and every one of them are blessed to bring forth children. And I believe he does this because it, he knows that things like family and children and marriage are the very thing that mitigates all the pain and the suffering that's caused by sin. Listen, I know this is true for me. I hope it's true for you. And I know if you ask many people on this earth, listen, all that this earth brings to you, all that this life brings to you, I think each one of, it, of us would confess that this is true that in all the trials and difficulties of life and all the pain and suffering that life brings, family, family is the best thing in this life. Family is the best thing in this life. Marriage is the best thing in this life. Uh, children, family. This, I mean, that's what makes it all... I mean, are you with me? I mean, it's at the top of the list. I mean, it's at the very top of the list. You see, it is a blessing unlike any other. The highest, I believe, the highest human love is expressed in a marriage. I I believe that with all my heart. I believe that children and grandchildren produce, there's a joy in that that you can't get from anything else in in this life. There's just nothing equal to it. Nothing rises to the level of that blessing. No one knows what real love is like a man and a woman who have committed to each other to walk through thick and thin. I'm not talking about that mushy stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a man and a woman who are together and say, we're going to go through it and we're going to go through the bad, we're going to go through the good, the thick and the thin, and we're going to walk through this thing. Nobody, there's, not, there's no other love on the planet like that. And that's a blessing from God. That is a blessing from God. There's no other love that can match that unique bond that a parent has with a child or, or a grandparent has with a grandchild. There's just nothing like that. You know, I've got a, I've got a little granddaughter and, and, and got another one on the way. And I'm telling you, man, that just, it, it, as I get to the last stage of, you know, the last third of my life or whatever it is, man, that's just the greatest thing ever. You've heard me say it. I don't know if Ella Kate is the greatest person to be born since John the Baptist, but we got to at least consider it, right? I mean, she's awesome. You know, I go through my days wondering, well, when can I see her again? When can we keep her again, right? I mean, it's just what makes life really worth living. And that is a, listen to me, that is a blessing from God. That is a blessing from God to mitigate, to lessen all the pain and the suffering 
and all the junk that this life brings along. I mean, think for one minute. Take away family. Take away all those things. What would this world, what would life be like? If you didn't have somebody to go home to, if you didn't have, if you didn't have the, I mean, what would it be like? It would be, it would be awful, wouldn't it? See, that's a blessing from God. So God is good. God is so good. He didn't have to do that. But he tells Noah and his sons, go reproduce. Go, go have lots of babies. Enjoy children and family because that's what's going to mitigate all the pain and the suffering that your sin is, is going to bring. That's one reason he does it. The second reason he does it is he does it for his own glory. He does it for his own glory. Malachi 2.15 says this. Wonderful chapter, by the way, if you've never read it. He's talking about the, the Jews come to, to God and they're complaining. You're not listening to us. We're, we're, we're doing all these sacrifices and we're, we're doing all this stuff and you're not, you're not hearing our prayers. And he answers them this way. He says, you want to know what your problem is? He says, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart and remain loyal to the wife of your youth. See, these men were just divorcing their wives and, and putting them aside, and they were just completely discounting marriage, and they come to God wondering, why don't you hear us? And God says, I put you together, and what do I want out of your union? Godly children. Godly children. He knows in the midst of this sinful world that there are going to be godly men and women who raise up godly children to really, truly reflect His image, and that brings glory to Him. So not only does he do it for our benefit, he does it for his benefit as well. He wants godly offspring who will grow up and become stewards for him on this earth, who will show through their good works the glory of God. See, God, godly families, listen, are at the heart of what God is doing on this planet. They are at the heart. They are spreading the message. They are, they are, they are basically jewels. Jesus said it this way, you are the salt of... Kathy and I were cooking some squash last night and we just kept adding salt to it you know you taste it and add more salt and taste it and add more salt and i was sitting there thinking that's exactly what jesus said without godly families without godly men and women this earth has no taste it's bland it's it's ugh, it's nothing we are that salt and so god says okay i know there's going to be billions of sinners running around but i'm going to bless you because i know that in this family and that family you're going to raise up godly children you're going to create godly families who are the salt of this earth, who give flavor to life, and that brings glory to, to Him. So that's number one blessing is procreation. Number two is prominence. Look at verse 2. This is chapter 9. He says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Now, let's go back again to the first time we had the first family on the earth, Adam and Eve, and what God told them. In Genesis 1.28, I think that's the wrong verse, it says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when Adam and Eve, the first time around, men, mankind, were given dominion over the animals. Okay, that was, that was the way it was. So as Noah walks off the ark, by the way, he walks off the ark with two of every kind, right? And so Noah may be wondering, well, 
Does anything change this time? Do I still have dominion over the animals? Is God going to change this thing? And so God validates or verifies or reiterates, yes, in this, you're still going to have dominion over the animals. So this is, again, it's echoed all through the original verses. You remember when God uh, caused all the animals to come by and Adam did what? He named them. Remember, naming is a symbol of authority right? We name our children. We name our animals. When you name something, you're symbolizing, I have authority over that. So the very fact that Adam named all the animals symbolized his authority uh, over that. So mankind is not only the procreator of all uh, human life, but we are also the ruler. We have dominion over all lower life forms. And so after the flood, this is still going to be true. However, something changes. Something changes. He says, the fear of you and the dread of you will be upon all the animal kingdom. Now see, that's new. That didn't happen early on. As far as we know from Scripture, prior to this, the animals had no fear of of man. You remember they, they walked by Adam as they were named. They walked by Noah as they went into the ark. They spent a whole year in the ark alongside Noah, as far as we know, very peacefully, right? They didn't kill each other. They didn't try to kill Noah. There was a a compatibility, a relationship between men and the animals that when they got off the ark, everything uh, changes. From this point forward, God says, I'm going to wire animals to be afraid of you. Now, I want to know, now why did he do that? Why would he change that after he gets off the ark to say, from now on, all the animals in general are going to be afraid of you? And we're going to come back to that. So hold that question in your mind because we're going to answer that here in, in just a minute. Before I move on, though, and answer that question, I want to point you out to one more thing. Look at the last line of that verse in verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. On and on and then at the end he says this, into your hand they are delivered. Into your hand I give them to you. Now listen, the entire animal kingdom, all the birds, all the animals, all the fish are given to us for our use. That's everything, okay? Anything out there, God says, I give it into your hand. I I give it to you. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as as human beings? Well, I'm going to give you three perspectives on this. Two of them are wrong and one of them is right, okay? The one, people tend to go, like all of us, we tend to go too far one way or too far the other way, and we, we have a hard time settling in the middle. This is two of the perspectives you see with animals. You got people on one end who will treat animals as human beings. That is wrong. Okay? I'm sorry. That is absolutely wrong. I fly all over the country, and, and I can tell you there's not a flight I'm on with somebody ain't hauling a dog on there. Right? It, it drives me, treating them like little babies. Let me tell you, folks, God said, into your hand I give them. You rule them. You have dominion over them. They are not your babies. Right? They are animals. Now, I understand I got two dogs. I don't, I'm not against animals and all that. But they're not riding on an airplane with me. I'm just, I'm sorry. That's not going to happen. But, but if you're one, I, I don't want to, anyway, let's move on before I get myself in trouble. The point is, is you'll see people like, like PETA, right? Profes- the, what is that? The... 
PETA, people, people. Yeah, I have, I, for some reason I have up the P I couldn't figure out. People for the ethical treatment of animals. There, I think her name was Dunkirk. She said a few years ago, a pig is a rat, is a dog is a boy. In other words, they're all the same. We're all animals, right? They, they want all animals. They, they think if you, I remember in one quote I read, somebody was talking to this lady about the Holocaust, uh, the Jewish Holocaust, and she said, well, that's nothing compared to the Holocaust, how many chickens we kill. Right, I mean, isn't that, you see what I'm saying? You go too far. They're not people. They're not people. On the other hand, you can go too far the other way and use and abuse them. That's not, that's not biblical either, right? There, there's one place that's on, there's one perspective and one view uh, that's right, and is that is that we are to be good stewards. We are to be good stewards. It's important, listen, to point out, first of all, that God is not relinquishing ownership of anything. Psalms 24.1 says this, The earth is the Lord's, and what? Everything in it, which includes the animals. Colossians 1.16 says this, All things were created through Him and for Him, which means they were created for Him. Okay, So we serve a stewardship role, not an ownership role. The animals are subject to us, but they're not ours to do with as we, as we will. In the end, they still belong to us. To God. Listen, if you are a steward, if somebody leaves you, for example, to house sit and something goes wrong, the first question in your mind should be, well, what would the owner want me to do, right? That's how you, you know, because it's not your house. So you think, what would the owner want me to do? And you try to, you know, address the problem as best you can. Well, since we are stewards, and this is true not only of stewards of the animal kingdom, but stewards of the planet, stewards of our money, the list goes on and on, we should always ask that question, what would the owner want me to do? What would God want me to do with this thing that he's entrusted into my, into my hands? I'll give you a few things about God. Number one, God cares about animals. Okay, There's a, there's a great story, and we all know it, and that's the story of Jonah. You all know the story, God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach, and uh, God, no, Jonah didn't want to go, he didn't like them people. They were a bunch of heathens, and, and he knew. He said, God, I know how merciful you are. If I go preach, you'll forgive them. And he didn't want them, he didn't want them to be forgiven. He wanted them to be destroyed. And at the end of the day, John, uh, God says this to, to Jonah. This is Jonah 4.11. He says, Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people and also much cattle? He thro- he, listen, God didn't have to say that. He says, Should I, shouldn't I pity this city where there's 120,000 people? He could have stopped right there, but he didn't. He said, there's also a lot of animals. You just want me to destroy all them? In Matthew 10, 29, Jesus said this, Not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. Now, Jesus goes on and saying, you're worth way more than a sparrow. But the fact is, God knows about the animals. God cares about the, the animals. Number two, animals bring glory to God. In Psalms 148, 7 through 10, it says this, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the deep, beasts and livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Praise the Lord. Now, how do they do that? They, they don't do it with their mouth. They do it by their very existence. I mean, you look at some of these animals and you immediately, my mind says, wow, God is unbelievable. Look how, look how creative he is. Look how artistic he is. Look at, look at what a design. Don't y'all do that? When you see some of these animals, it just, I don't think evolution, I think God. Because those animals, just by their very existence, bring glory to God. And I should just kill them? I should abuse them and abuse them? No. 
No, at the same time, they're not people either, right? There's a, there's a middle ground where we are good stewards. Proverbs 12.10 puts it this way. The righteous care for the needs of their animals. I like that because it kind of hits both points. You should care for the needs of your animals. In other words, they're still animals. Doesn't, doesn't elevate them to anything above that, but yet the righteous man cares for them. Not too much because they're not human beings, but not too little because they are instruments of God's glory. Number three, provision. Provision. Look at verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Adam and Eve in the garden. God says this to them. See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. You see, when this all started out in the Adam and Eve, everybody's vegetarians. Adam and Eve are vegetarians. All the animals are vegetarians. They all eat grass. They all eat, uh, they all eat fruit. By the way, in the, in the, uh, in the, what's, in the, in the millennium, when, uh, the Bible says the lion will lay down with the what? And they'll both do what? They'll both graze. There's coming a time when animals will once again go back to where they were in the Garden of Eden. But So when it first started, they're all vegetarians. There's no meat eating because there's no death. Animals don't eat one another because death doesn't come until the fall. Now, after the fall, we don't really know what happened. it, It could be very likely that that animals began to eat one another. We don't know. The Bible is kind of silent on that. But here we are, Noah's getting off the ark. Originally, he said, I give, you're all going to be vegetarians, right? What's going to happen now? Are we still going to be vegetarians? If there's been any meat go, eating going on, is God going to put a stop to that? What's going to happen? And God basically just clears it all up in verse 3. And he says, as you come into the new world, eat meat. In fact, eat anything you want. I've given it all to you for, for food. In other words, if you've been a meat eater, Noah, you don't have to go back to being a vegetarian. If you are a vegetarian, I'm, I'm opening up all these, all these animals to you to partake of uh, if, if you want to. So every moving thing that is alive is available now to you as a food uh, source. So these, again, this is a blessing. And I want to reiterate that. This is a blessing for everybody. Marriage, children, grandchildren, leather boots. Ribeye steaks, have at them. You wear crocodile purses, whatever floats your boat, right? Have at them. It's no problem. And in fact, God, here's the wonderful thing. All those blessings right there, God does not even require that you believe in him to get them. Doesn't even require that you believe in him. This is for everybody. This is a common grace. This is a common blessing for all mankind. Now, before I move on, let's go back to the question that I left hanging. Remember... God said, I'm going to put the fear of animals, I'm going to put the fear of man into all animals. And we asked the question, why would he do that? To be honest with you, I don't really know. The only answer I can come up with is because now that we can eat them, the fear is their only protection against us. You see, animals have all these protections against other animals, but they don't really have much protection against us at all, right? So when he puts the fear in them, it's kind of, he's kind of offsetting. I'm going to give you all these animals to eat, 
but I'm going to put the fear of you into them so it ain't going to be easy to catch them. Right? You're going to have to, you're going to have, it, 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 you just can't go out and wholesale slaughter them. Everybody with me? So that's the only reason we can really come up with as to why he did it, but that one uh, makes, makes sense. Now, sometimes God blesses us by allowing us to have things, okay, which you saw in those first three blessings. Sometimes God blesses us by prohibiting certain things, okay? And that brings us to the final two. The first one is prohibition. So God has just said, Noah, you can have anything out there you want to eat. You can eat kangaroo, you can eat buffalo, you can eat ribeyes, you can eat creeping critters, whatever floats your boat, you, you can go and, and have it. But there's one caveat, and we find that in verse 4. You should not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In other words, Noah, you can have all the meat you want, but you cannot do the following. You cannot eat animals that are still alive. You cannot eat raw, bloody meat with the, with the blood still in it. And you cannot eat or drink blood separated from the meat. Everybody with me? Those are the, does, anybody, does that hurt anybody's feelings that you can't do those things, right? doesn't hurt my feelings at, at all. I remember years ago I was in Mexico and they killed a goat. They said, we're going to eat a goat. And I said, well, okay. You know, and I didn't know they were going to... They actually brought, when they opened the truck, the goat popped out alive, right? So they hung him up and slit his throat and, and bled him out. And then they took that blood, big pan of blood and they gave it to a lady and she made some kind of pie or something out of it, which I did not partake of that, okay? So here's the point. Why would God give us this restriction? Why does God say, you can eat anything you want to eat, but just don't eat the blood? Why would he, why would he do that? Well, I think there are two reasons. Um, obviously, I don't know God's mind exactly, but I think these are two re- reasons that, that are, are good. First one, I think this reason pointed ahead that to, the, to the importance of blood in the sacrificial system. God, God you see, he, he, see, in the law, eventually, he'll come out and specifically, specifically ban the, the eating of blood. Exodus 17, 10 through 11 said, says this, This is way down the line and years and years later. He says, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner foreigner residing among them who eats blood. For, and and that's the word because, the life of the creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So early on, God is saying there's something about the blood that's going to play a pivotal role in atonement. And for, for a person to just eat blood or partake of blood, it's like just spitting in God's eye. I don't, I don't believe in all that mess. I don't need all that stuff. I mean, it is, it is about as disrespectful as it gets. God is saying, I, this is an important part of what I'm going to do. So I'm setting down a, a, a blessing or a mandate right now that you shall not do these things. Now, that's one reason. I also think that safety or protection is also in play here. We know a lot more today than we knew then. With microscopes and stuff, we know the types of things that are carried in blood, the the types of bacteria. We know, everybody in this room knows, it is not safe to eat raw meat, right? Does everybody know that? I mean, mean, we know today that blood is very, very dangerous. They didn't know that then. So I think that's part of the things that God did here is just kind of a safety issue um, as well. So I think that could probably be a second reason that God forbids it. Brings us to the last one, protection. 
Okay, so we've had what? Procreation. I, I've already forgotten. <laughs> what, what are the four? Huh? Prominence, provision, and prohibition. And we get to the last P, which is protection. Look at verses 5 through 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Okay? Now, two things are, are going on here in these verses. First, God is reestablishing the preeminence or the prominence of mankind. Okay? See, he's saying a human life is valuable. In fact, it is so valuable that if you take it, I will require your life. It literally is going to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's saying a human life is so valuable. I want you to remember, we just stepped out of 1,600 years where God had destroyed the earth because of the violence and the corruption. We have no idea what was going on in that pre-flood. Probably people were killing each other with just you know just left and right i mean it was they had no regard probably for human life so when god steps on the other side of the flood the first thing he says to noah is that okay i've got to make a change here i'm gonna i'm gonna institute a protection for you because things got so bad before i'm gonna put this blessing in place and he's saying here a human life is valuable to me it is so valuable that if you take it I will require your, your life um, as well. So what he's doing here, by the way, is he's establishing the law of capital punishment. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's establishing the law of capital punishment, and he's putting it in as a deterrent. Again, he knows Noah and his family are sinners. They're going to produce a bunch of other sinners whose minds are bent from evil from the day they're born, and what are they going to want to do when they grow up? They're going to want to kill each other. They're going to kill one another. It happened before, and it's going to happen again. So I have to, as God says, I need to put in a deterrent to that. And this is the deterrent right here. Right off the boat, he says, look, human life is so valuable that I'm going to institute here the law of capital punishment, and it's a blessing for your uh, protection. And by the way, it's a blessing. If you go back and read that, let me back up here real quick. From every, not only from every man will I require it, but from every what? Every beast I will require it as well. So it doesn't matter who takes that life, they're going to be required to, uh, uh, to, to pay in their, in, in, with their own life. Now, later on down the line, this will be codified in the Mosaic Law. In fact, a lot of details will be added. Let me, let me just give you an example of this. This is Exodus 21, 28. So this is many years later when they kind of sit down and they all they codify it out. It says this, If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox should surely be stoned. Its flesh shall not be eaten, and the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring, and its owner has been warned, yet he doesn't confine it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. Let me tell you, if we had, well, again, I'm, I, I, <laughs> if this was in place today, you wouldn't have a lot of these pit bulls running around unleashed, would you? You wouldn't have a lot of that stuff going on. See, God is putting, here it's being codified to say, look, man, you need to take care of, this is how valuable a human life is to me. 
It is, it is extremely, extremely valuable. So as, as, as Noah and them kind of come off the boat, like I said, later, this will all be codified into detailed law, but as they get off the boat, this is the, the law of capital punishment at its most basic. Anyone or anything that kills a human being will be put to death by the hand of a human being. Let me tell you, pretty much the whole human race has just been judged, as we said, because of their corruption and their violence. And God knows, left to itself, it'll all go back down real quickly. God knows that. It's going to go real bad real quickly. So God puts in a deterrent, okay? And, and I will tell you, I think these two verses give us a fascinating look into God's mind. Not only what he thinks about murder, but also how he views human life. I mean, he, to, to God, human life is as valuable as you can possibly get. To him, it is the ultimate crime against the highest of God's creation. See, listen, a murderer has taken it upon themselves to remove God's image from this earth. You understand that? It's not when you kill somebody, it's not, oh, I just took another life. No, you took a piece of God's image and you took it upon yourself to remove it from the planet. God says that is a, you don't do that. You absolutely do not do that. And we can take that to abortion today. We can look at capital punishment. We can look at, we can look at a lot of issues, but I'm telling you, God sees every abortion in the exact same way. That is a child in the image of God, and you are taking it upon yourself to remove that image of God from this planet and never give it a chance to glorify God. And God says, I will hold you accountable for that. Someone, you, you have taken the life of a person who is transcendent, a person who is eternal, a person who is, I, I have put on this earth to personally relate to other people, and you took it upon yourself to eliminate that image of God. And God says, I will not, will not abide that. But here's the new thing. Here's the new thing. By man shall his blood be shed. By man. See, this is brand new. Okay? You remember when, when Cain killed Abel, and he says, man, people will kill me. And God says, no, I'm going to put a mark. That's my job, right? I, I deal out that thing. I'm going to put a mark on you, and people will know not to touch you. But after the flood, God says... Okay, mankind is now under a divine mandate to be the agent of God's judgment. This is, this is brand new coming off the flood. Listen, this is, I want to make sure you understand this. This is not personal vengeance. That's what, this is not what God's talking about here. Personal vengeance is prohibited all throughout Scripture from the very first to the very end. This is not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is societal vengeance or, or societal justice, if you'd rather put it that way. And that is a blessing of God for man's protection. Okay? It is significant to me that one of the first things uh, that God affirms to Noah is the sanctity of human life when he gets off that boat. In fact, is we live in a society today where human life is no longer regarded as sacred. I mean, let's be honest. Um, we've got murder all over the place. Euthanasia movement is growing. Obviously, abortion. I think I, I read last year, one and a, basically one and a half million babies a year in this country alone are killed. And that all comes from what? It comes from abandoning this book. You walked away from this book. We don't need to go by God's blessings and God's mandates. And you walk away from this book and we're killing 
images of God all over this planet. Because without that book, by the way, the, without this, you're just going to be treated as an animal. Just another animal, right? This book says you are created in the image of God. And your life is sacred to God. So this is exactly what God affirms to Noah. God says, I have, nothing has changed. Human life is sacred. And, so for the, and by the way, for the survival of our nation and our culture, we all need to pray that we'll return to believing in the sanctity of that, uh, of that human life. Next week, we'll turn to verses uh, 8 through 17, and we'll look at the rainbow and God's covenant with, uh, with Noah. Let's pray. Father,